Today we are going to finish our study of the New Covenant in the book of Hebrews, and we're going to be looking at Hebrews chapter 9, verses 15 and following. We've already looked at the New Covenant in Hebrews chapter 7 and what that means, or what the priesthood of our Lord Jesus Christ after the order of Melchizedek means for that New Covenant, and we've looked at uh, the New Covenant in Hebrews chapter 8 and the first part of chapter 9 and about how this all relates to the sanctuary and to the most holy place. But now in this last part of Hebrews chapter 9, the apostle uh, emphasizes particularly that for this new covenant to be established, blood must be shed. That is, there must be uh, the death of the testator, as he says in verse 16. For where there is a testament, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. Now, we are in uh, our English-speaking uh, society uh, forced into a uh, translation of the word here, testament, that uh, somewhat obscures what the apostle is saying. He has been using the word diatheke in uh, earlier parts of the epistle to the Hebrews and our English translation in chapters 7 and 8 and the early part of chapter 9 have been translating that word as covenant. But here in chapter uh, 9 verse 15, if we translated that word as covenant, it would not make much sense to us. For where there is a covenant, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. And yet the word is the same. What the apostle has done here then is in verse uh, 16 of chapter 9 is uh, single out a particular kind of covenant, a last will and testament, what we would call a last will and testament and which would be included in the mind of the apostle among all those other mentions of the covenant that he has made in the earlier parts of the, of the book. So he's talking still here about the idea of covenant, but he singled out the particular kind of covenant which we call a last will and testament. Now, this is a very striking thing here, that he, he does this because uh, he does this for a very particular purpose, and uh, that purpose is that this particular kind of covenant, the last will and testament, requires the death of the one who makes the covenant, that is, the death of the testator. Where there is a testament, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. Now we could point out that this particular uh, kind of covenant also is a covenant which is very much a one-sided kind of covenant, a unilateral kind of covenant. In this kind of covenant, the testator, the man who makes the last will and testament, makes promises, makes promises to his heirs. And he uh, formally, uh, he establishes these promises on a formal basis. That is, he, he creates a document, he has witnesses to the document, he signs the document. The document has legal force and legal power. 
Uh, and uh, in this document, though, the testator does what he wants to do. He chooses the heirs. The heirs have uh, nothing to say about who is going to receive any part of the inheritance, nor do the heirs have anything to say about how much of the inheritance they're going to receive or what parts of the inheritance. It's all together in the hands of the testator. He can do his will. And this is, of course, exactly the nature of God's covenants with men. God does his will in these covenants. He determines who are the heirs, and he determines what inheritance each one will receive. But that's not the particular point that the Apostle is emphasizing here in Hebrews chapter 9. What he is emphasizing is that a last will and testament uh, requires the death of the testator in order to be in force. For a testament, he says in verse 17, is in force after men are dead, since it has no power at all while the testator lives. As long as the testator lives, that last will and testament is just a document, and the heirs cannot uh, receive anything based on that document, cannot do not have the right to anything while the testator continues to live. It's only after the death of the testator that the last will and testament comes into force, that this particular kind of covenant uh, becomes effective. And so the apostle then says, this is the kind of covenant that God established, first of all, with men in the Old Testament. So he says in verse 18, therefore, not even the first covenant was dedicated without blood. And that first covenant that he's talking about there is the Mosaic covenant, because he goes right on to say, for when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people, according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats with water, scarlet wool, and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you. Then likewise he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of ministry, and according to the law almost all things are purified with blood, and without shedding of blood there is no remission. So there was a covenant that God made, a last will and testament, as if you will, and that covenant could uh, come into uh, effect only by the shedding of blood. He made his covenant with his people at Mount Sinai through Moses, and then he uh, added the blood of the covenant to it. Now, we may point to this blood of the covenant in any one of God's covenants in the Old Testament. The covenant he made with Adam and Eve after their fall, uh, there, were, there was blood shed in connection with that. That was the time at which God instituted the sacrifices. There were uh, sacrifices made at the time of Noah. There were sacrifices made in connection with the covenant of God with Abraham, especially the dividing of the animals through which uh, the burning uh, uh, torch passed, and so on. The, there's always the blood of the covenant, but it's especially in the Mosaic covenant that this idea of blood becomes prominent. There was blood all over that covenant. As the apostle says here, all things were purified with blood. 
And this was, of course, this blood was necessary for the remission of sin. God could not become the God of his people. The covenant could not become effective except through remission of sins. That's the whole point, then, of verses 15, 16 to 22 in Hebrews chapter 9. All that old covenant had to have a blood of the covenant to go along with it. But the, um, the point, then, that the apostle makes in verses 23 and following is that this same thing is true in the new covenant. Look at what he says in verses 23 and following. Therefore, it was necessary that the copies of the things in the heavens should be purified with these. That is, the copies of the heavenly things that existed in the Mosaic covenant had to be purified with those sprinklings of blood and so on that he talks about in the verses that um, precede. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. So those earthly things were purified with the blood of animals and with all those ceremonial cleansings and sprinklings and so on of the Old Testament. But the heavenly things, the things that belong to the new covenant, must be purified with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us. Here is the difference between the old and the new covenant. Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands. The holy place and the most holy place were made with hands, and he has not entered them. He never did enter them. In the Old Testament, he was not a priest according to the order of Aaron. He had no right according to the law to enter the holy place or the most holy place. But as the new priest of the new covenant, he enters into the heavenly sanctuary, into heaven itself, not into the copies, but into the true thing, to appear in the presence of God for us. So he appears in the very presence of God on our behalf. And he does that by offering his own blood. That is, he is the testator whose blood is shed to make the covenant effective. Not that he should offer himself often as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood of another. In other words, he uh, suffered death only once. His blood was shed only once. That's all that was necessary he was not like the priests of the Old Testament. If he had been like them, he then would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world, verse 26. But now, once, at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. His shedding of blood has really accomplished the remission of sins. By the sacrifice of himself, he has put sin away, our sin away. And he has therefore entered into the true holy place, the very presence of God for us. As it is appointed for men to die once, but after this ju the judgment, so Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. 
To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time, apart from sin, for salvation. The old covenant then required annual blood, and if Christ had been like those priests of the old covenant, he would have had to suffer often. But now, at the end of the ages, and notice that, he's talking about the end of time there, that end of time which begins with his incarnation and ends with his second coming, that end of time, he offered himself once to put away sin. Just as men uh, die once and appear in the judgment, so Christ died once in the judgment of God, but was raised again and is now seated at the right hand of God, stands in the very presence of God on our behalf. He bore the sins of many. And to those then who wait for him, he will appear a second time, apart from sin, because sin has been paid for, for salvation. So the death of the testator was necessary for the covenant to become effective. This is what the old covenant was continually saying to the people of God. The death of the testator is necessary in order for the covenant to become effective. And this is what the ceremonies of the Mosaic Covenant taught the people of God in the Old Testament. The blood of the covenant must be shed in order for God's covenant with you to become really, fully effective. And that blood of the covenant is not the blood of bulls and goats, but is the blood of Christ himself. He is the Lamb of God. That's the significance then of Hebrews chapter 9, verses 16 and following. Now, before we end our study of the new covenant in the book of Hebrews, I think it would be well for us to look at how in the rest of the book, the apostle comes back to this subject of the covenant more than once. And he comes back to it in in two different ways, basically. On the one hand, to encourage us with the riches of the promises of that covenant, and the other other hand, to warn us against uh, unfaithfulness, against breaking that covenant. You find the the great benefit of this uh, new covenant described in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 to 25. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, that is, Jesus has gone into the most holy place, the true tabernacle, the heavenly sanctuary, and now we can go there too. Having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus. The way into the most holy place, the way into the presence of God is opened now. In the Old Testament, it was closed. It was closed by the veil. It was closed by the structure of the tabernacle. It was closed by the uh, mediating priesthood. There was uh, no way that the people themselves could enter the presence of God in the Old Covenant. But in the New Covenant, that way is open. The veil has been torn. The flesh of Christ has been torn, as the Apostle says. And we can draw near. 
Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, that is, of course, Christ too, let us draw near, near to God, as near as it is possible to be, into his very presence, with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. That old covenant could not purify the conscience, could not cleanse the conscience from dead works to serve the living God. But the blood of the new covenant, the blood of Christ, does sprinkle the evil conscience, cleanse it from dead works, and bring us into the service of God. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he is uh, faithful who promised. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching." And then, if you go over to chapter 11, you have that whole recitation of the heroes of faith, which is given to us as a cloud of witnesses to encourage us in our earthly walk. And in the early part of chapter 17, the uh, exhort of chapter 12, rather, the exhortation to run the race with endurance looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of, finisher of our faith, and uh, to bear the chastisements which our Father sends on us. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. So we have all that encouragement in chapters 11 and 12 to run with endurance, to be steadfast in faith, to hold fast to the promises of God. Then in chapter 12, verses 22 to 24, he says, You have not come to Mount Zion, but you have come to the new Jerusalem. You have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. Through the blood of the covenant, you come to God, to Jesus, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, to the innumerable company of angels, to the heavenly Mount Zion and the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. That's the benefit of this new covenant of grace which God has established with us in Christ Jesus. But there are also in this passage, in this last part of the book of Hebrews, warnings against unfaithfulness. And these are designed, of course, especially for those uh, Jews who had confessed Christ and were now having second thoughts and wanting to return to the Old Testament ceremonies. 
And the apostles saying, they're done away, they're abrogated, they have vanished, they've been made obsolete by um, the shedding of the blood of Christ. And you must not therefore try to return to them. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 29, of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing, and insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And there's another warning in chapter 12, verses 25 to 28. There the apostle says, See that you do not refuse him who speaks, that is God who speaks. As he once spoke from Mount Sinai, he has also spoken to us through his Son. See that you do not refuse him who speaks. For if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven, whose voice then, that is on Mount Sinai, shook the earth. But now he has promised, saying, Yet once more I shake not only the earth, but also heaven. Now this, yet once more, indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken as of things that are made that the things which cannot be shaken may remain, that is, the things that belong to the new covenant, the heavenly things, including ourselves, who are new creatures in Christ. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. So you have the promises of that covenant, particularly that promise that we have access to the most holy place, to the very throne of grace. Let us come boldly into the very presence of God. Let us come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let us enter where the Lord Jesus Christ, our forerunner, has entered before us and for us, and obtain the blessings which he has um, promised to us in this new covenant. And finally, we should note that at the end of Hebrews, we have a covenantal blessing. It's found in Hebrews chapter 13, verses 20 and 21. Now may the God of peace, who brought up our Lord Jesus Christ from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you perfect in every good work to do his will, working in you what is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, I suppose it is possible that some may say, well, this is all addressed to the Jews, to those Jews who had indeed confessed Christ, but nevertheless to Jews. And these, this whole book of Hebrews, therefore, is really for the Christian Jews, not for Gentile Christians. But what we've seen, of course, is that Hebrews is talking about the new covenant 
of which Christ himself speaks in connection with the Lord's Supper. This is the new covenant in my blood. And it finds that new covenant, which embraces all the Gentiles, brings them into the house of God along with the Jews. It finds that new covenant better than the old covenant. Hebrews does not make a big point of this, but there are certain places where you find references to it. Christ, for example, is called in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2, the heir of all things. Not the heir of Judah, of, of the Jews and the land of Israel, but the heir of all things. In chapter 2, verse 4, we have reference to the gifts of the Holy Spirit. God also bearing witness both with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. These are what we call the charismatic gifts, which were given not only to the Jews, but also to the Gentiles. We find in verse 9 of chapter 2 also that Christ tasted death for everyone. And the apostle means there that he did not taste death just for the Jews, but he tasted death for the Gentiles as well. He is, according to a later passage in Hebrews, the author of eternal salvation to all those who obey. The language and the language of this book of Hebrews is constantly applicable to us. There is not one place here where we would say in the book of the Hebrews where that's for the Jews only. When he's talking about this new covenant, he's talking about ourselves. So in chapter 12, verses 23 and 24, the passage we just referred to, he talks about the church of the firstborn. You are the firstborn, both Jews and Gentiles, who believe in Christ. In chapter 9, we have further evidence that this is also inclusive of the Gentiles. It's not a huge point that the apostle makes, as I've already said, but it's there. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 12, first, not with the blood of bulls, of goats and calves, but with his own blood, he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. In and verse 15, and for this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant, that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. Again, in chapter 9, verse 28. So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. All those things are as applicable to Gentile Christians as to Jewish Christians. These are not special promises for the Jews only, but for all Christians in, uh, throughout the New Testament, whether Jews or Gentiles. And this man, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 12 and 13, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God, from that time waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. 
So who could doubt that this is spoken also for us who are Gentile Christians? So this new covenant in Hebrews, the whole focus of this uh, idea of the new covenant is this is the fulfillment of the old, and as the fulfillment of the old, it is better, much better, much more glorious, bringing us much nearer to God than ever God's people could come to him in the Old Testament. And all of that is because our Lord Jesus Christ, by his own blood, has entered the most holy place ahead of us and for us so that we may follow him there. Next time, then, we hope, God willing, to wrap up our study of the New Covenant by looking at the New Covenant in the book of Revelation, especially chapters 21 and 22. May God bless you by means of his word.